Good morning. That was our first baby dedication. Oh my goodness. How cool is that? We are really going to miss you guys. You have been uh, special to us. Oh my goodness. Uh, So we are in a real short um, three-part series called Sit, Walk, Stand. Um, and it's actually, uh, we, I took the name from the, um, a book by Watchman Nee. Anybody know Watchman Nee? Yeah, really great um, author. And the book is, uh, Carol um, actually brought it to me. My book is on my Kindle, so I couldn't hold it up. But she brought it. It's really little. I mean, it's super tiny. Um, you can read it in, you know, it's like one sitting. Um, but it is extraordinarily powerful. And, and what it basically does, um, we, we, I probably didn't do a great job introducing this last Sunday, but what it does is it takes a um, look, although brief, at the entire book of Ephesians. And I would actually commit the book of Ephesians um, to you to read because the book of Ephesians is really a crowning sort of um, theological work of the entire uh, scripture. I mean, Paul really outlines all of what it means to be a believer and to walk with Christ Jesus. And so I want to put up a couple of slides here, but you you actually, in, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Um, you come across Ephesians 1.20, and that says that he worked in Christ when he raised uh, him from the dead and seated him uh, at his right hand in heavenly places. So that's Christ Jesus is seated in heaven next to God. You got that? That's where the sit comes from. And the second verse it goes on, I want to read is in Ephesians 2, and it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with, uh, with him or us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what uh, Clive actually uh, took last week's message, and he preached that the Christian life begins from sitting, and it begins really from rest. So think with me a minute uh, about the seven days of creation. Remember what God created on the sixth day? Anybody remember? Adam and Eve. Okay, so on the sixth day, God was creating these and, you know, everything every day. And on the sixth day, he created Adam and Eve. And then what happened on the seventh day? He rested. So Adam and Eve's first day was what? Sit. Sit. Adam's first day, Eve's first day alive was literally from a position of rest. It was from a position of being seated. And that actually uh, grates against almost everything we are taught in America. Work harder, be better, improve yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do it. You know? and, and now let me also say, there's some elements of that that are wonderful. I mean, the, the Bible is full of advocating personal responsibility. I'm all for that. But here's the deal. You cannot walk the Christian life out unless you begin it from a place of rest unless you begin it from a place where you are seated. So Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 literally unpacks the entirety of the gospel, um, and then it kind of comes to this culmination where it goes, Christ Jesus was crucified. That's why we started off with the Apostles' Creed, but he was crucified, dead, buried. He descended into hell, and then when he rose again, God brought him into heaven and has seated him at the very right hand of God the Father. And then it goes on to say that for those of us who are in Christ, where are we? seated at the right hand with him. Blow your mind. 
So Paul in these three chapters unlocks all this massive theological truth. If you weren't here this week, I think it's on our podcast already. If it's not, it will be. But uh, go back and listen to Clive's message on being seated. And it really comes from Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Then if you read the book of Ephesians, you get into chapter 4. And there's this massive shift in the writing. And all of a sudden, Paul goes from sort of the, the, um, the macro of this is what it means to be in Christ Jesus. This is what God has done. This is what he has accomplished. And he flips it and he goes, now, here's your responsibility. So there's a couple verses I wanted to point out here. Ephesians 4.1 says, what? Walk. That's my title of today, walk, sit, walk, stand. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, Ephesians 4, 17. You must no longer, well, let's try that again. (laughs) You must no longer, as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, Ephesians 5, 2. And in love as Christ Jesus has loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5, 8 says, as children of light. And then Ephesians 5.15 says, look carefully how you, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, I want to actually um, come back to this because that's the subject of the day, but I want to do a quick look at next week and prepare you for that. Because after you get through Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, you enter into Ephesians chapter 6, and it's all about standing, and, and this really is the most brilliant um, sort of exegetical, in my opinion, understanding of the book of Ephesians because you break it down. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, sit. Chapter 4 and 5, walk. Chapter 6 is stand. And standing is all about standing against the enemy. So it's about positionally, if we're seated at the right hand of God, what does that mean in our daily lives? That's next week. Sound good? All right, back to walk. Um, so we're going to jump in here, and I am going to read... I'm in Ephesians 4. I'm just going to read a couple of verses out of 4. And I'm going to trust you to read the rest of it. So let's start in chapter 4, verse 1. I I don't think I have this up there, and that's okay. I, therefore, um, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. By grace, he was given to each of us according to the the measure of Christ's gift. Amen. Lord, I pray you'd open these scriptures to us today. I pray you'd bring revelation. And as we even look at how to walk, Lord, would you enliven our hearts in the name and by the blood of Jesus. Amen. When I read Ephesians 4 and 5, um, it reminds me of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew uh, 5, because it is so intimidating. Like the Old Testament law is um, the, the, the Ten Commandments and the, the laws of the Old Testament are, are serious. But then Jesus gets up on the Sermon on the Mount. And what he does at that Sermon on the Mount is he takes the challenge of Christianity. It's already almost like, how do you even walk this out? And he makes it so impossible. It makes me, can I be honest, want to just give up and go, there's no way I can live up to that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Ephesians 4 and, and 5, and I read the whole thing, um, is so humbling. And I actually walk away from it and go, Lord, how, how can you even do this? How can you even walk out this thing? And you know, I think one of the dangers um, in, in our own Christian walk in life is you've read the Bible so many times, we've been to church services, you've heard it, maybe your grandma talked about it or whoever in your family, and we open it up and you stop actually reading it for what it is and applying it, but you start thinking, oh, I'm pretty good. I've got it together. I'm walking this thing out. I'm doing all right. But when you really listen or read the Sermon on the Mount, when you really look at Ephesians 4 and 5, it absolutely blows you away because there is no way you can walk it out. There is no way. There is not one of us. And so what it immediately brings us back to is we cannot do this without God. So my first point that I actually want to put up here, I'm quoting Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. It's the very last uh, thing he says on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, uh, <clears throat> be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I used to read that and go, what? What? How am I going to be perfect? I remember sitting in a Bible study with a group of guys and a kid brought this up. And we're like, how are we supposed to be perfect? This is crazy. But hear me. That's the power of the gospel because it brings you to the place where you go, I can't. Jesus, will you do it in me and through me? And that's the gospel. That is how we walk with Christ Jesus. Be perfect as he is perfect. Now, um, I would actually encourage you, and, and uh, I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount, so I do have to say some of us are going to Israel in September. Who's going? You're actually going to stand there where Jesus preached it. You are going to stand where he stood. And one of the things that you're going to do, it's going to be so cool, we're going to be there, is you'll send people to the rim of that canyon, which is just up from the Sea of Galilee, and somebody will speak in the middle of it, and you will be able to hear a man's voice at the top of that rim where 10,000 or more people could have gathered. It is incredible. Make notes. It'll blow you away. All right. Uh, so how do we walk? Um, here's a, a thought. Uh, I think each of us needs to sort of look at, are we living from that position of rest? I don't even think I can preach. How do we walk? I don't think we can talk about what Paul's saying in Ephesians 4 and 5 without you looking at your own life and going, am I living from a place of rest? Am I living from a place, a seated position? Because that verse, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, demands that you come to the place where you go, Lord Jesus, I cannot do this. Will you do it through me? I can't earn it. I'm not good enough. I have fallen. I have failed. I have made a mess of my life. I, uh, I've shared some of my own testimony. I have a painful um, seven-year chunk in my life. And I came back, and I had a, a, an old friend, um, and he actually went to high school. I went to high school with these guys over here. But uh, he went to high school here with us. And he's not a believer, still isn't a believer, but he loves that I'm a believer. And so we're, we're friends. And uh, he would actually try to encourage me. And he'd go, the best thing about rock bottom is it can't get any worse. <laughs> he'd put an expletive in there too that I deleted for your benefit. But, but he would say it to me all the time. I mean, I was at this point in my life where it's like I, everything was broken and lost and I was going, Lord Jesus. And he would go, listen, 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 Michael. The best thing about rock bottom is it can't get any worse. And I was like, oh. But you know what? When you come to that place where you go, I can never be perfect in of myself. I am bankrupt I can't do it. I can't be a good enough husband, a good enough dad, a good enough neighbor, a good enough person. You come to this point and you actually go, Lord Jesus, I can't, will you? 
And that is what the gospel is all about. That is the surrendered life. It's coming to that place where you go, Jesus, would you live your life in me and through me? And that is the essence of what the book of Ephesians is about. That's the essence of what sit, walk, stand, this little book is even about. You know, one of the things that I think you have to look at here is in America, um, we have been bred to compare ourselves, right? What's your Instagram account like? You know, you're scrolling through and you're like, look how good their life is. And look where we live or look what we did for our vacation. And look how, man, they're skinny and they're, they didn't lose their hair. And, you know, <laughs> we just had our 20-year reunion and everybody was like, I, didn't, I couldn't make it. But some people came and they're like, oh, you lost your hair. And I'm like, yeah, I lost my hair. But, but we're bred in this thing where it's all about um, comparison. And, you know, it's like um, anybody you meet, anything they're talking about, um, I, I like to surf, some people like to golf, maybe you're a painter, whatever it is, but you can start thinking you're pretty good until you compare yourself. If you're a golfer, you think you're pretty good until you compare yourself to who? Tiger Woods. You know, or if you're a surfer, you go, I'm pretty good until you compare yourself to Kelly Slater. If you're whatever, a painter and, you know, you're, you're great or a poet or whatever, you can go on and on and on. But here's the point is, you know, you can actually start thinking that you're doing pretty well until you compare yourself to the standard. The question for us is who are we comparing ourselves with? There's actually a verse in scripture that says, they that compare themselves with themselves are without understanding. One translation even says, uh, stupid. And, you know, I, I think what I would actually um, want to say to you here in my second point is how do we walk? Our standard of living cannot simply be right or wrong, just or unjust, fair or not fair, but it actually has to be the cross of Christ. And if you compare yourself, how am I doing, to your neighbor instead of to the cross of Christ, you're missing the boat. You follow me? Um, think about it maybe like this. <clears throat> In fact, let's let's even get practical. Let's go let's go fiercely practical. Let's get into your um in your uh, whether it's your marriage or whether it's you at work or whether it's you as a mom or you as a dad or you as a grandmother or grandfather or whatever. The standard um, we tend to make the standard uh, each other. What's Grant doing? How's he do? How how how's he? So we we tend um to to look at one another and go. Uh, uh, how how um, I'm going to compare myself to someone else in order to make myself feel better about where my life is. Follow me? So <clears throat> the problem is you get in an argument um, with, a say, your spouse. My Abby is sitting right here. And somebody says something, and you bow up, and you're going, but she or but he, if they would only, instead of looking at the cross of Christ. You follow me? See, the cross of Christ, what did Jesus say? Forgive them for they know not what they do or are doing. The cross of Christ puts us at this standard that is so high that all of a sudden our rights and what we think we deserve and this wasn't fair, this isn't just, sort of melts away. I want to give you a practical example in my life. I could give you about a thousand examples of when um, I have responded really poorly um, and have not actually used the cross of Christ as my rubric, as my measuring tape. 
But there was a situation a few years ago um, in my life, and um, there was a couple um, that, uh, there was a group of people that got angry and poisoned against me. Can I say it like that? I'm going to be very, try to be gentle here. And I was really hurt, like really, really, really hurt. And uh, we were over, um, I had my family, and we were over uh, walking at a place, and I saw one of this, one of the, the, the people, and uh, they were um, exercising, and I was dressed up because I was just come from a meeting, and I saw them, and I had been working like diligently in my five-year journal and in my prayer to forgive and to let go. Some of you who are actively working on forgiving, that's hard, isn't it? So I'm working on um, actively forgiving, and I see one of the people, and I think, you know, this is an opportunity. And uh, they'd been exercising, and so I went up and, and saw them, and I was about 50 yards away from my family, and I walked over, and they were at a water fountain. And I went up and I said, hey, it is so good to see you. And they were drinking out of the water fountain, and they put their hand under the water and filled it up and threw it at me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm dressed up, and in that moment... What do you think I was like? <laughs> I mean, I'm a pretty nice guy until you cross me. I'm a pretty nice guy until I don't get my way. I'm a pretty nice guy until things stop going like I think they should go. And if we're honest, we could flip that and go, you're probably pretty nice until your will's crossed. And I literally sat there in that moment with water on me. And it was like all my old hurt came back. Forgiveness is like an onion, by the way. You get through one layer and guess what you find under it? <laughs> Got to forgive again. And, and, and let me actually say, if you've been deeply wounded, even something as serious as like um, abused, it is an ongoing active thing that you have to live in to forgive and to forgive and to forgive. And I'm sitting at the water fountain and, and, and here is the sort of the, the essence of what I'm attempting to communicate. The first thing that goes through my mind is, how should I respond? How, to look good, what should Michael say? What, what would the appropriate thing to say back? Because at this point, I am like, I am so angry. It is about, I'm, I mean, I'm just about to lose it. I'm boiling up inside. And I stood there, and instead of trying to clean up my outside and figure out what I needed to say, I went, Lord Jesus... I don't even know how to forgive this person. And I need you to forgive in me and through me. And I just let it go at the water fountain, dripping water off my nose. And I just look back and this, it's like the Lord Jesus did this thing inside my heart where he changed me. That's what you gotta hear. I didn't sit there that day and go, how should I respond? What is the right word to say? How should I clean up the outside? You remember Jesus got really angry at people who cleaned up the outside but neglected their own hearts. And I almost fell into that. And I could tell you a thousand stories where I did. But in this one instance, it was this moment and I just went, Lord Jesus, I don't even know how to forgive. Would you forgive for me? Would you forgive through me. And then I look back at the person and go, it was wonderful to see you. And I turned, and I actually meant it. By that point, it was like, it, 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 was, a, it was something that, that genuinely came up inside of me. And, I, I, and what I was sitting there thinking was, 
the things that I have been forgiven for, the price that he's paid for my sin. I could metaphorically tell you of a thousand stories where I took water and threw it on the face of Jesus while he was on the cross of Christ, you know, on the cross. I could tell you in stories after story where I've hardened my own heart and walked away from him. And in that moment, what I'm literally doing at that water fountain was going, Lord Jesus, it's not about me. So suddenly I took my measuring tape off. How does Michael feel? Is what they did just? Is what they did fair? How does it measure up? What would people say about it if they actually knew? And all of a sudden I turn and put the measuring tape back where it belongs on the cross of Christ Jesus, which is he gave everything for me and for you. I think in the process of walking out the gospel, when you look at Ephesians 4 and 5, it is so intimidating to read because there's so much in there. Be angry. Don't, don't be angry. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Be patient. Be kind. Be gentle. Be loving. It's like, oh my goodness, it goes on and on and on. But the point is that you actually get your, that measuring tape where it belongs on the cross of Christ and you're living life out with him at the center. So when he is at the center, when you're, 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 when you're on him, what he has done and not what you've done, or what you deserve, all of a sudden, everything melts away. It all goes away. And all of a sudden, you're not performing. Um, I've spent much of my life performing, trying to look right. And I say, I don't ever want to do that again. I just don't. I'm not interested. I want to actually have a heart that's postured right before the Lord Jesus so that his love and his spirit actually rises up and flows out. That's what I want. And sitting at that water fountain that day, that's all I did because I was angry and I was hurt and I was frustrated and I couldn't believe it. I was also disappointed with God. Can I say that? How could you let it get to this point, God? And I got my eyes onto the cross of Christ and went, oh my goodness, I'm measuring the wrong thing. It's not about whether I'm treated fairly or justly. So how do we walk? Number one, you be perfect, which basically means you live from rest. You've got to surrender into Jesus. You cannot live the Christian life without laying it all down in surrender and letting him live his life in you and through you. Number two, how do you walk? Your standard of living must be the cross of Christ and nothing else. It must be the cross in your marriage, with your kids, everywhere. It must be the cross. Number three, how do we walk? The greatness, this is a mouthful a little bit, but the greatness of his demands upon us shows me how confident he is that the resources he has put within us are enough to meet the demands. Jesus in you is enough. When he says, my grace is sufficient for you, what he is saying is, if you are willing to come to him and surrender that heart before him and let him fill you, the resource of Christ Jesus in and through your life is enough. Can you forgive in and of yourself? No. No. Can you overcome the obstacle you're facing by yourself? No. Can you perform your way through life? Well, you can, but it's going to be empty. 
You want to be filled with the peace of Christ and the strength of Christ and the courage of Christ and filled with faith. You actually have to come and surrender. So what it actually says to me is the greatness of what Ephesians 4 and 5 says are in how to walk out the Christian life is that he is confident that because Christ Jesus is in us and we can surrender to him, he can do it through us. But it's got to be him. It's got to be him. And if I, would be, if I would say anything, I do not like who I become when I become religious. You know what I mean by that? In other words, when you, you begin to clean up the outside and you start to perform and you start to do things because you think other people want you to do them or because you're a pastor and what would people think if you didn't? See, the answer is, Christ, would you uh, raise up within me and then let me walk it out? That's the key. That's the path. And that's the road. A thought that, uh, a couple thoughts. Remember when uh, Jesus said um, on the Sermon on the Mount, these two passages tie together so clearly, but he said, if someone makes you go one mile, go with them. He's actually saying, go with them three, go with them four, go with them five. He's actually saying, be prepared. If someone comes to you and hurts you, posture your heart in such a way that you will lay it all down and walk it out with them. There was a rule under Roman law that a Roman soldier could come and grab any person at any time and make you carry something one mile. Isn't that weird? True. And he's using that because everybody who was listening to him would have gotten, okay, so um, if, if a Roman soldier comes and gets you and makes you go one mile, you go with them too. But what he's also saying is posture your heart to actually go the third mile. So what's that mean? If you're upset and you could go, well, my husband doesn't, y'all fill in the blank, wash the dishes, cut the grass, vacuum, I don't know what it is, or my wife doesn't, or my roommate doesn't, or my partner, whatever your situation in life is, the question goes back to the cross of Christ, and all of a sudden you go, but he did. And you go the second mile, the third mile, the fourth mile. Because when you get in context, the price he paid and what he laid down, all of our little squibbles, you know what I'm talking about, squibbles, just melt down. The fourth thing I want to point out to you, and I think this is maybe most important. How do we walk? I would actually say to you, assess what you are telling yourself. Now listen, you might come in here and I might get to preach to you 37 minutes a week, maybe. Who preaches to you the other 167 hours? Who? Who's who's preaching to you? Me. That's right. That's right. You might listen to me. What's that? Sometimes Sometimes mom and dad, and that is brilliant. Because you know what? Cynthia, I'm so glad you said that. Because if we're not careful, we can actually create a God in the image of our mom or our dad and spend our life trying to please or make up for that deficit. You ever see that? Uh, Abby and I just watched that movie, Saving Mr. Banks, the Mary Poppins movie. Y'all seen that? You see, okay, I got one hand. Thank you. I got two hands. I cried. I loved it. But, but what began to unfold in that, and Cynthia, you make such a good point, but what begins to actually unfold in that movie is you have an author and Walt Disney who are both trying to either save or please a father who's no longer alive. 
And see, if we're not careful, you can actually create um, God. If you're not looking to the Bible and looking to the word to actually author who is God, you can create him in the image of a father. And it might be the image of a father you never knew. You might go, I'm adopted, Michael. I didn't even have a dad. That's what I'm talking about. I was a foster kid. There you go. So the, the question then literally becomes someone is preaching to you 168 hours a day, what you are, or 168 hours a week, what you are saying to yourself is what you're going to live out. I'm a failure. I'm a bad dad. My marriage is terrible. What am I going to live out? It's going to be like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The world would even tell you that. I literally get up in the morning and I have a set of declarations. I've got a five-year journal and I start my day by reminding myself, Michael Mattis's sin has been paid for at the cross of Christ Jesus. Michael Mattis is a son of the Most High. Michael Mattis doesn't lose his temper and be ugly and horrible to people at water fountains. I don't say that part. I do say the other stuff. What you preach to yourself Why do I go, get in the one-year Bible? Because you're actually allowing your heart and your, your soul to be washed with the water of the word. I think the greatest risk for us American Christians is that we get stuck in our religious sort of hoity-toity uppity thing and we start going, I've got it all together. And we stop reading the Bible with a sense of awe. When you read Ephesians 4 and 5, it is so humbling and you go, Lord Jesus, would you save me? The greatest risk for a preacher guy like me is that I begin, I stop sitting under the message that I'm actually preaching and I'm just telling it to y'all and telling you to sit under it and I get arrogant and I get a big head and I start thinking I'm better instead of actually sitting under the word and sitting in the word and letting the Holy Spirit minister and change me through it. We can all do that, every one of us. The longer you walk with God and the better things are going in your life, the greater the risk that you actually become sort of dead and religious and you're just going through the motions instead of reading the word going, oh my goodness, Lord Jesus, would you save me? I've been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. I've been filled with the Spirit. I'm being filled with the Spirit, and I will continue to be filled with the Spirit. Why am I telling you that? Because it is daily. It is daily you get in the Word. It is daily that you have to preach to yourself, remind yourself, let the Holy Spirit wash you with the water of the Word, that you can remind yourself that it's about Him, not about you. This is so important. C.S. Lewis actually said, every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. What you preach to yourself is the way you will live your life. And I'm actually encouraging you. Remember when we did the breath prayers at the beginning? We said what we're thankful for. I do these little breath prayers. I think it was Brother Lawrence or somebody who coined that phrase. I got it from somebody else. But it's, it's literally going through the day and you're going, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me for whatever it is? Fill in the blank. Lord Jesus, would you fill me? Lord Jesus, would you help me be 
the dad you want me to be, the husband you want me to be, the pastor you want. It's, it's going through the day and talking to him in the journey. It's relating to him, and then it's allowing him to live his life in you and through you. It's like it's almost hard to get your head around. I got a friend who's in uh, personal crisis, doesn't go to church here, and I called him and just prayed with him. He cried and I cried. And uh, we were friends at, in college at UNCW, and we used to plan our classes together. Isn't that funny? We planned our classes together. How dumb is that? And uh, we'd go surf in the mornings. Um, and, and then we'd carpool to school together and go to class and then go, you know, surf again in the afternoons. And on the phone, we, we prayed and we both cried. And uh, then he said, you know, I remember sitting in your dumb little blue Nissan pickup truck. I had this 1984 Nissan pickup truck with 200 and 19,000 miles or something on it. And he said, and you just bust out and pray. He said, that's never left me. The interactions with God on a moment by moment, day by day, space and place. And I would actually invite you, if you're not walking with Jesus like that, if you're not walking out the gospel in an intensely personal way, where you're interacting with him multiple times throughout the day. Lord Jesus, if you can't look at the word and go, Lord, would you forgive me for, because I see where I do not measure up and need more of you to fill me, I would invite you to think again about how you walk. There's a passage in Isaiah 6 that I got up and I read this morning. And Isaiah comes in and he sees a vision. He's a prophet. And he sees a vision of the presence of God filling the temple. It's like this presence of God, literally, there's smoke that fills this whole temple that he sees in this vision. And when he sees God, the glory of God is so great, he cries out, he goes, woe as me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's how I feel reading Ephesians 4 and 5. Then the angel actually took the coal and came and it says he burnt Isaiah's lips and he says, your guilt is gone. Your sin has been forgiven. That's how you walk out the Christian life. It's that transaction that happens, not just once, but daily. And church, I'm convinced that if we as a church would get a hold of the power of Christ in us, and through us. And if we pause at the proverbial water fountains and go, Lord Jesus, not my will, but your will. Lord Jesus, would you empower me to forgive them because I don't think they even know what they're doing. Lord Jesus, would you help me to see them the way you see them? Lord Jesus, would you help me to be the person that you want me to be? Can I be your hands, your feet, your face in this situation? I don't think a city would be the same if a group of people would consistently do that. I don't know about you, but I don't like much of Michael Mattis in my marriage, in my home, in my life. But when I'm surrendered and Christ Jesus is entering in my marriage, in my home, 
in my life, the peace of God is evident. That's where it's at. How do you walk with him? You surrender it all. You begin from rest. You make your standard of living the cross. You realize that even though you read something like Ephesians 4 and 5 and the demands are so great, you go, you know what? Jesus is enough. And you begin to preach that gospel to yourself every day. And I'm convinced in that place that the power and presence of the Holy Spirit can fill you in such a way that not only will you not be the same, the people around you won't be the same. I believe the Lord has called this little church to powerfully walk out the gospel in this city. I think you're going to see some interesting and creative things happen over the next months. But here's what I want to know. Will you walk with him like that in that open-handed posture of surrender, letting him work in you and through you? not working for your salvation. It's already been done. It's already been done. Christ paid it all. But letting him work it out as you walk. Let's stand and Perry, can we sing a song?